Today is the uh, 28th of September, uh, 2008. We're beginning our study on the uh, epistle to the Galatians, and I've titled this, um, Grafted In. Let's open in prayer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Lord our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the family of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches the Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has selected us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and safeguard you. May the Lord illuminate his countenance for you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn turn his countenance to you and establish peace for you. These are the precepts that have no prescribed measure, the corner of a field which must be left for the poor, the first fruit offering, the pilgrimage, acts of kindness, and Torah study. These are the precepts whose fruits a person enjoys in this world, but whose principle remains intact for him in the world to come. They are the honor due to a father and mother, acts of kindness, early attendance in the house of study, morning and evening, hospitality to guests, visiting the sick, providing for a bride, escorting the dead, absorption in prayer, bringing peace between man and his fellow, and the study of Torah is equivalent to them all. And that's from the uh, Art Scroll, uh, page 17, Blessings of the Torah for our study. And uh, we'll spend a little bit of time in this lesson. This is an introduction. This is lesson uh, uh, zero, as it were, for an introduction to the uh, uh, study in Galatians that we have uh, online. Uh, And we'll go over a little bit of things, a little bit of uh, administrative things first, and then we'll get into uh, an introduction, why we're going to study this this book, this uh, wonderful book, the book of Galatians. As far as a study overview, uh, what we have online right now is a workbook that has uh, seven uh, background lessons uh, that includes this intro as well. Um, and uh, we'll be posting our outlines. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll be doing our best to uh, do this uh, every Sunday, uh, at the very latest, hopefully, God willing, Monday uh, of every week. There's seven background lessons uh, that we'll do, be doing first. Uh, and then we'll have actually the six chapter lessons in the book of Galatians. Um, the workbook that is uh, currently online uh, right now, as of this date, uh, is only about uh, um, half of the workbook is online right now. Uh, the first six lessons, the background lessons, and while we're uh, completing uh, these first six lessons, then we'll be uh, uh, I'll be working on the uh, chapter lessons, uh, chapters 1 through 6, so those will be posted at a later date. I've also included the bibliography. Uh, The bibliography, of course, is important, and we'll talk about a little bit about uh, bias, but the bibliography is important as far as uh, knowing the resources uh, where a lot of these things that we're talking about are coming from. Um, It is best uh, to study ahead of time before uh, getting into uh, a discussion. Uh, It's best to have uh, preparatory homework. And I know that is a, it's, it's a lot of effort uh, for people to do that. Uh, it's something that I have committed myself to for a number of years. 
Uh, I know that our family has uh, um, uh, done this as a family for uh, years and years. Uh, my wife and I, even before we had children, were doing it for years in, in uh, as a as a regular and as a disciplined Bible study. Uh, it is something I think that is important, although I do know that uh, not everybody uh, is able to do or uh, feels like they're able to do it. I would highly uh, suggest that people do that, though. Uh, then we'll be doing a, uh, an audio discussion after that each week. So in, as an example, um, this week uh, we're doing an intro lesson, and the, the purpose for this is in our discussion is simply to set the stage. We have not done any homework, and we haven't done any preparation. So next week we'll, our discussion will focus on uh, lesson one of, of uh, the Epistle of the Galatians. And the workbook lesson one is found on uh, page eight, and it's entitled Israel's Calling. But for this week, because we haven't even done an advanced uh, work, we will, in fact, just be uh, ta- setting the stage, talking about administrative things as far as this study, and then also setting the stage, why we're going to study this book. Um, as far as questions, uh, I know that because of the online format, it may be a little bit more difficult for people. Uh, and a lot of times uh, in our discussions, we have an opportunity to discuss uh, questions that come up, and uh, usually they are questions that are common that, that, that many people would want to hear the answer for. And because of that, I've, I've set up a page online uh, on our study page that actually allows, uh, allows us to disseminate some questions and answers. If you have a question, uh, you can send it to uh, Uziel, that's uh, U-Z-Z-I-E-L at BereansOnline.org and uh, uh, any question that is a common question, something that uh, others might benefit from as far as uh, the answer, we'll research the answer and we'll be posting those online. And there's already been, uh, uh, there already has been a question which we've we've already put online as far as uh, the dating of of this epistle of Galatians. Um, Let me read something real quick. This is... uh, this is a quote. This is a, actually, this is a, uh, a preface to a study uh, that uh, it's entitled uh, Magna Carta of Spiritual Freedom. And uh, in this Magna Carta of Spiritual Freedom article or, or preface uh, to, a, uh, to a, a, a commentary on the book of uh, Galatians, uh, this is written by a renowned, uh, well-respected, conservative evangelical scholar, evangelical teacher, uh, who is uh, well-respected. I will not mention his name. I have immense respect for him. Uh, it, I only re- I'm only reading this as a, uh, as a means by which to discuss the, uh, the predominant view of uh, most evangelicals regarding the book of Galatians and, and to use that as a jumping-off point for our discussion today. Uh, Here it is. Uh, The Magna Carta of Spiritual Freedom. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, over half were written by one man, the Apostle Paul. Were it not for the letters of Paul, we would be in darkness concerning the truth of the church as the body of Christ and its function, activity, and destiny. Therefore, it is no small thing that the epistle to the Galatians is regarded as one of of Paul's greatest and most important letters. It has been characterized as a short Romans, that's in quotes, the epistle to the Romans can likewise be viewed as an expansion of Galatians. Galatians, more than any sing- other single book, became the manifesto of freedom and revival of biblical truth in the Reformation era. Quote, the Magna Carta of spiritual emancipation, unquote. It has been called a small pebble 
with which the reformers smote the papal giant of the Middle Ages. William Ramsey has called it a unique and marvelous letter, which embraces in its six short chapters such a variety of vehement, vehement and intense emotion as could probably not be paralleled any uh, in any other work. Likewise, Merrill Tenney has pointed out few books have had a more profound influence on the history of mankind than has this small tract for which, for such, it should be called Christianity might have been just one more Jewish sect and the thought of the Western world might have been entirely pagan had it never been written. Galatians embodies the germinal teaching on Christian freedom which separated Christianity from Judaism and which launched it upon a career of missionary conquest. It was the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation because its teaching of salvation by grace alone became the dominant theme of the preaching of the Reformers. Unquote. And that last quote was by William uh, Merrill Tenney, by the way. Continuing the article, Paul's purpose was to keep the new kingdom from being another Jewish sect. Instead of proclaiming a gospel of grace to all men, Instead, proclaiming a gospel of grace to all men, Galatians 3.26, his letter to the Galatians has blocked the path of many who would change Christianity into a new paganism or another sect of Judaism. It stands as a challenge to all who would take away the grace of God and the truth of the gospel and the joy and freedom that goes with it. End quote. And that's the article called The Magna Carta of Spiritual Freedom uh, from a renowned... Uh, evangelical uh, teacher uh, in talking about the uh, book of Galatians. Uh, when I read things like this, I am very and deeply saddened. I'm saddened because when I read uh, descriptions such as wanting to uh, separate Christianity from Judaism, and Christianity, quote, is Christian might have just been a, what, another Jewish sect, um, I'm saddened because also because the book of Galatians has simply been summed up as uh, basically a uh, a book that uh, that uh, sets the stage and validates the Protestant Reformation. How sad because nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, this is uh, this book of Galatians is not a book uh, that was written for the purpose of separating. Um, people from, uh, at, at that time, the Roman uh, papal uh, system. Uh, certainly there are a whole lot of reasons to do that, but that's not the purpose for the book of Galatians. It's anachronistic to read the book of Galatians and, in fact, to see the book of Galatians as simply, as Luther did, simply a, a means by which to prove uh, that we're not under papal authority. In fact, that we don't gain salvation by our attachment to the church or the Roman church or whatever else. As laudable as all those things are, that's not the purpose for this book. And when we, in fact, read this book and settle this book this way, what it has been done is this book becomes a book of small quotes apologetics against Messianic Judaism, apologetics against Messianic people, those in the Messianic movement, apologetics against Judaism, and that's all, except for chapter 6, which has some nice little quotes about the, the fruit of the Spirit, etc. It becomes settled theology. It becomes a, a matter of uh, something that's already been dealt with. Uh, most, uh, most Christians would find no value 
in, uh, in reading it uh, or in studying it from chapters 1 through 5, uh, except by which to uh, use it as a bludgeon and has, it has been used as a bludgeon, in fact, against uh, the followers of Yeshua, those who find that his, uh, his teachings and that his instructions to us have been and are consistent with all of the Word of God. And this is the, I'm reading this because it, it is remarkable to me, the, uh, the mischaracterization of this book, the Epistle to the Galatians, as Paul wrote it. It is uh, most likely the first book written uh, in the Apostolic Scriptures, or uh, certainly one of the earliest books written. Uh, and I would, I would date it somewhere around 48 of the Common Era. So it would, it would, be, it would have been written uh, within the generation of the resurrection. Um, the fact that it was first written, of course, simply uh, makes it all the more uh, valuable to me. Uh, one of the things we want to do in this epistle, in this study, this epistle to the Galatians, is in fact examine um, why the book was written. Uh, and that's why we're spending the first uh, seven lessons, uh, the first six lessons specifically after this lesson, in looking at background, why the book was written, what was, what was happening at that time. And then from that point, then look at the book itself. Uh, the purpose for us doing this is, in fact, to negate the uh, vehement bias against uh, certain concepts within, um, within Scripture uh, that many have attempted to do. And we, what we want to do is try and eliminate that bias. That is not to say that uh, we are unbiased. Uh, I am biased. I am very biased. First of all, I'm biased uh, for the Scriptures. And when... when some who claim sola scriptura, only the scriptures, uh, resort to writing such things uh, which uh, clearly uh, are anachronistic, clearly out of the context of the scriptures. Separating Judaism from Christianity? Uh, where, where in the scriptures can we read anything about something like that? Um, that idea that sola scriptura is only good uh, for certain things but not everything. Uh, no, I'm biased for the scriptures. I'm biased in the sense that the scripture is uh, sufficient. However, the scripture is sufficient in context. God speaks in the language of men. And that means that he speaks in a way that is meant to be understood to those who it was written to. Uh, and in speaking in the language of men, we understand that God expects us to do our homework and understanding the context of Scripture. Otherwise, it just simply becomes a Ouija board by which we can come up with anything that we want, taking Scriptures out of context, taking verses out of context, plugging in, the, in, in such a way as to validate our own theology. That is an error. It is an error that we all fall prey to, that we need to be careful of. So yes, I'm biased for the Scripture. I'm biased for the idea that the Scriptures are complete and that they are uh, the sole source of authority. Uh, and, and we recognize that as the sole source of authority, uh, that they must be taken chronologically uh, in their original writings and understand that none of it can be abolished, none of it can be overturned. So I'm biased. I, I am Torah observant. Uh, and to the best of my ability, I will uh, follow all of God's instructions. Uh, I look forward to the day when all of them can be followed. Certainly there are instructions that can be followed to this day simply because of the, 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 the uh, exclusion uh, from uh, not having uh, the temple of Jerusalem, uh, the exclusion of not having uh, um, Messiah reigning as king or having a, a godly king over us. 
but within the context of where we are and how we're living, uh, those instructions have, have, have merit and are still valid. We await for the day when we can, uh, God willing, uh, participate in all of the instructions of God. Uh, but never would I consider any of them to be abolished or to be relieved of responsibility, uh, to relieve yourself of responsibilities, to relieve yourself of the blessing. This is a tragic thing. So yes, I'm biased. I'm biased. Uh, I'm biased towards following and discovering a uh, a Hebraic uh, source of my faith, recognizing that Yeshua was a Jew, uh, that he remains a Jew, and that forever he will be a Jew, and recognizing that to separate ourselves from even using the word, the modern word Judaism, that is the religion of the Scriptures, is to be separating ourselves from God Himself. Uh, God, God, in fact, has chosen, as we're going to look at next week, God has chosen Israel as, these, as the source of blessing for all nations. And to distance ourselves and to separate ourselves from them uh, is a grave error. So, yes, I'm biased. I'm biased in that regard as well. I try and state my biases up front. Uh, in the beginning of the, our book, uh, actually, I have a list of biases that we would consider ourselves uh, to be, uh, in fact, biased towards our, our standards here. But at the same time, recognizing that uh, um, that we are willing to consider uh, with with uh, with logical and with uh, scriptural argument uh, in context to consider other points. I, I fear that many of our brothers who, in fact, treat this book as a bludgeon against those in Messianic Judaism are, in fact, um, not so gracious. They are not so gracious as to consider. Having said all that. This study is not about apologetics. This study is not an answer to those who would oppose uh, the whole counsel of God and the concept of the whole counsel of God. This study is not meant as a book or as a study of messianic apologetics. There is certainly need for that and there's, there's purpose for that and oftentimes we will, we will sound like we're doing that. But that's not its purpose. I think to do so would actually be missing the very point of what we're doing here. Um, what we're doing here is discovering why this book was written and how it applies to us. God, God wrote this for us. And uh, there is application. There's, there is dramatic application in this book, I believe. And part of the problem with us simply using it as apologetics is we're falling into the, that same trap of using the scriptures, using the scriptures to support our viewpoint and our theology. And, and we need to be always on guard against that. Uh, one of the things and one of the reasons why uh, I, I prayed this blessing at the beginning, that, uh, that God would bless us as we study his word, and that the words of the Torah be sweetened in our mouth. Because the idea is that the scriptures should be studied for their own sake, uh, not, uh, not simply as a means by which to, uh, to support or uphold a position, a theological position. What I, what I aim to do in this study, and what I hope and pray that occurs in this study, is that we uh, take this marvelous book and we ask the Father, we ask Abba, how it is, that it affects us today and how we live, how we will take these things and uh, what we discover in this book, how would we apply them to our lives so that we will be changed. The, the, uh, the goal of learning is to change behavior. And what we want to do is not just simply change minds, but we want to change our behavior. And our behavior might be uh, the behavior of the righteous, the community of the righteous, that we might act in a way that is pleasing to the Lord.
talk a little bit about um, uh, that's the background of why why we, why I decided to uh, do this study and why we're going to spend some time doing the study in Galatians, spending uh, these weeks doing this. But uh, in in setting the stage, uh, we've done no homework. So in setting the stage, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about uh, this. Um, this idea, this concept of having one people. And I've, pre- I've presented a number of scriptures here, and if you have an online outline, you can, uh, um, you can look at this. Uh, go to John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23. John 17, 20 through 23. And this, uh, this might be called, uh, some people have labeled this the high priestly prayer of Yeshua. This is after his, uh, his last uh, Seder at Passover, um, before his death and resurrection. This is John 17, verse 20 through 23. And Yeshua is speaking. I do not pray for these, and he's talking about his disciples alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you that they also may be one in us. And this is, this is the key here. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me. And that they may be perfect, made perfect, excuse me, made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. John 17, verse 20 through 23. Uh, Yeshua wants us to be one. What is it to be one? Um, uh, in our quote uh, from this uh, teacher, he talks about the separation and how good it is that there's a separation between Judaism uh, and, and, as he says, Christianity. Or that Christianity, as he quotes, Christianity wouldn't simply be another sect of Judaism. Is, is that exactly what God wanted? He wanted, he wanted division? Is that what he wanted? He wanted one people and then divide into multiple people? Uh, in fact, um, the purpose, that, and Yeshua's prayer here, is that we might be one, because in finding that unity, in being one, the world will believe that He has been sent. We've, this, is a, this, is a, this is our duty. I mean, this is a great duty that we've been given. Um, part of the problem with looking at this, this book in the context of what most of us have been exposed to um, is in fact that we have come away with, we have this preconceived notion of this conflict of the apostolic scriptures, or what some people call the New Testament. This conflict is between law and grace. This comes out of that great, you know, the, the Protestant Reformation, law and grace. You know, and whoa, aren't we glad we're no longer under the law? And, and so a lot of times the conflict of the apostolic scriptures, specifically Paul's writing, is coming from this idea of law and grace. I'm here today to tell you that, that uh, the conflict of the apostolic scripture is not the, con- the conflict between law and grace. Oftentimes the idea of law has been refer- misrepresented. You know, the idea is like, oh, well, people are working for their salvation. So obviously we don't want to have works-based salvation. We want to have, you know, a salvation that comes from grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, um, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, <laughs> No religion of the world that I know of believes that they're saved, quote, saved by works. Um, 
there are some that are. There's no question about it. But this is obviously a this is all obviously a straw man argument to somehow point the finger at Judaism, or let's rephrase it as biblical Judaism. That is that that religion of the uh, of the Tanakh. That is, as some people call the Old Testament and the Apostolic Scriptures. You know, or at least the early part in some people's mind of the Apostolic Scriptures. The, the idea that that is work works based. Uh, far be it from being works based. Uh, even modern Judaism recognizes that that it is by faith and it is by grace that God placed people into the family of Israel. Uh, so, so the idea that somehow people are working for their salvation in, in the first century just would have been silly to even consider uh, because they weren't. Uh, Paul was not writing against don't work by your own salvation. That's not the conflict of Paul's writings. Here is the conflict. Here's the principal conflict. There are many conflicts within the apostolic scriptures. Certainly there's a conflict between the idea of the forces of good. That is, God and his, and his righteous ones. And, and evil. That is, uh, the, the enemy and, and the wicked. There's a conflict there. There's no question there's a conflict there. Sin and righteousness. There's a conflict there. However, the principal conflict, if you're to try and sort through it all, the principal conflict of the apostolic scriptures, not law by grace, not law versus grace, but rather, what do you do about Gentiles? Now, <laughs> uh, the vast majority of people who follow, call themselves followers of Jesus, that is, followers of Yeshua, disciples of Yeshua, would, are, are Gentiles. This doesn't even enter our minds that this is even a problem. Uh, what do you do about Gentiles? Why, who cares? You know, we're all Gentiles. What does it matter? Uh, a more, more significant co- uh, question today might be, well, what do you do about Jews that are coming? Well, the answer is, of course, they become Gentiles. Right? These are neither new Jew nor Gentiles we're going to see in Galatians, as it's been quoted. Uh, so everybody just becomes a Gentile. Well, is it, is, so that's the solution in some people's minds. No, no. The, the conflict is, what do you do about Jews? Specifically, do, or excuse me, what do you do about Gentiles? Specifically, do Gentiles who commit themselves to following the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, following Yeshua, the Messiah, do they have to become Jews? Or is there something else going on? Now, in most people's mind, it's like, what? Become Jews? How do you become Jews? You know, And why would that matter? Uh, again, we're looking at things from our 21st century perspective that does not w- read well moving back into the first century, and certainly in this book, and, and in fact, all of Paul's writings. Uh, how do people become, let's put it in this phrase, how do people become a part of the people of God? That is the principal question. That is the conflict that we read in the apostolic scriptures. How do people become a part of the people of God? And now, Paul uses the phrase circumcision, and when he does, he's using it almost always as a shorthand for uh, the phrase ritual conversion, becoming a Jew, as it was referred to in the first century. We're going to go into depth in this as we look at this question and going into our study we're going to spend a lot of time on this question we're going to look at extant texts we're going to look at the Talmud uh, we're going to look at other sources to discover 
where this concept comes from. Is it biblical or not? And we'll, we'll be hoping to resolve this uh, uh, and, and at least see that it, that is the framework with which Paul was writing this book and many of his writings that deal with similar issues. Um, because Paul is called, remember on the Damascus Road, as Paul's going into Damascus to persecute the followers of Yeshua, uh, on the Damascus Road, Paul has this experience. He meets, as it were. He hears the voice of the risen Yeshua, the risen Messiah. And in this hearing of this voice, this voice from heaven, he's struck to the ground. He's struck blind temporarily. And he is immediately uh, convicted of his sin and is chosen by God as his special emissary an apostle, an ambassador to the Gentiles. Because of that, Paul, in a unique way, in a good and profound way, he uses his mission, his duty, his calling, uh, in, in his writings to continue to promote the ideas of the Gentiles being included in God's plan of salvation of the ages. And that is the principal conflict of the apostolic scriptures. Um, it's a real conflict. And now, again, thinking and cons- considering the vast majority of people who, are, who are, uh, call themselves disciples of Yeshua, uh, who call themselves followers of Yeshua, this escapes their, their minds. This, this is incomprehensible. What does it really matter? I mean, there's only a few Jews anyway. Um, and what we need to understand is, in fact, uh, this, this conflict that's, that's, that's going on, or that went on in the first century, continues today. It's invisible and under the surface, in large part because, in fact, the vast majority of believers have separated themselves theologically and physically from the very people of God, from Israel. And because of that, they are unaware that the enemy is succeeding in keeping us separate, in keeping us not united. Those of us in the Messianic movement, uh, the various facets of the Messianic movement, because it couldn't be described as a denomination, we describe ourselves sometimes as Christian, we describe ourselves most often as Messianic Judaism. Uh, of course, the response that we get from our, from our Jewish brothers and sisters is, wait, all Judaism is Messianic. Uh, we recognize uh, that specifically Messianic Judaism recognizes that there is a Messiah. He has been named. He is currently the reigning king. And uh, we look forward to his return in his name as Yeshua. Uh, but Messianic Judaism sits in the middle. Messi- Messianics sit in the middle and, and say, we understand uh, that in fact God is not finished with His people Israel. Uh, we understand, in fact, that that there's uh, that there's a significant role for Jews to remain Jews and not to abandon their Jewishness uh, when they come uh, to, to to believe in Yeshua as Messiah. We understand that, so uh, so we got to figure it out. So we don't need to worry about it, this conflict. And I would I would contend that we definitely need to worry about this conflict. In fact, we're at the battlefront. Because we stand in the middle, because we stand in that position where, where the two people are become one, we are going to be the focal point of the enemy to break that up and to destroy that concept. Because we are leading the charge, the return to the biblical nature of, and the biblical uh, 
understanding, the biblical revelation of redemption. We are at the forefront in Messianic Judaism. As Messianics, we are the tip of the spear. And the enemy knows this. And he wants to seek to divide us. Within Messianic Judaism, there are many different factions. There is no single voice that speaks other than the voice of Scripture. Uh, but people have taken sides on issues about Gentile and Jew. Are Gentiles considered Jewish? Are Gentiles part of Israel? Is, are the, is the Torah specifically only for Jews, whereas Gentiles are not bound by it? All of these things are sometimes distractions in my mind because what really matters is not all of those questions. To me, those are, those are answered rather by the answer to this question. Who are Gentiles? What do we do about Gentiles? For the record, I'm a Gentile. I, although I may have, and although I have Jewish, some Jewish ancestry, uh, the vast majority of my ancestors are Gentile. Pagans. Uh, uh, who, who have no, have no, had no hope uh, in the world to come. And, and uh, so I, 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 I find this, uh, if it's, some of this is offensive to Gentiles, please don't, I'm offending myself at the same time. If it's offensive to Jews, uh, uh, forgive me please. But uh, one of the things we need to recognize is that we are one people. Um, there was a conflict in Judaism. The same conflict we're talking about, what to do about Gentiles, is not something that's unique to the apostolic scriptures. This conflict is a conflict that goes actually into nominal Judaism. And the very sects of Judaism had to deal with this issue. One of the great parts that we're going to do in these next, uh, these next six weeks in these lessons is look at this conflict in Judaism as well. This conflict is not just unique to us who follow Yeshua. This is an ancient conflict that, in fact, has profound reper repercussions upon Judaism today, in addition to our faith uh, and uh, those of us who follow Yeshua. So we're going to look at, we're going to spend a lot of time in the next uh, six weeks looking at this dispute that arose in Judaism, and specifically that it arose before, before Messiah was even born, and it was being dealt with before Messiah was even born. Uh, I, if you don't like history... Uh, you, may, you may find a lot of this to be uh, difficult. Let me encourage you, if you don't like it, I understand that some people just don't like the history stuff. Let me encourage you. The, the workbook is set, set apart and, and designed in such a way that there, is, uh, there are questions at the beginning of every, uh, every lesson. Uh, questions you need to be considering. Just They're just some questions. So this is the way that we learn, by asking questions. So I prompt some questions in your mind. Maybe you'll come up with addition, additional questions. But then we take the time to actually set the historical reference, set the historical context for what we're going to look at. And every lesson, even when we get into the book of Galatians itself, is to be looking at the historical context. But then also there's going to be time where we're looking up scriptures and doing cross-references and doing charts or whatever else. These are valuable things, even if you don't like the history, the background stuff. These are valuable things that I encourage you to participate in. You know, and then finishing up with, with, uh, with a certain amount of, uh, in our conclusion, a certain amount of meditation uh, where we consider the things that have been talked about. And I give a prayer, I give a prayer focus for each uh, lesson as well. So let me encourage you, even though these first six weeks, if you don't like history, you might find this to be a somewhat dry. Let me encourage you not, not to just put it off. Uh, be diligent in, 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 in trying to understand the context. If you do not understand the context of the epistle to the Galatians, you will miss, you will miss what it's talking about. 
your biases, your theological biases going into this will not be in any way shaken. And you'll simply come to the same conclusions that so many have come to before. Uh, conclusions that are founded ultimately, ultimately upon a second century anti-Semitic theology that refuses to acknowledge that God has not cast off his people Israel, whom he has foreknown. May it be never considered. It is our duty to read this book in its context. So let me encourage you, stick with it, stick with the history the best that you can in, in discovering this. As we look at these, this conflict uh, uh, in Judaism before the second century, there's two main groups. And the Talmud talks about two main groups. Uh, the Talmud, by the way, uh, and other excellent texts we're going we're gonna to resource it's, it's not meant as an endorsement of everything there, although there's great things there. Uh, the, the Talmud, and I treat the Talmud as a glossary of sorts, uh, as a glossary for me to understand some of the things that are being mentioned, specifically in the apostolic scriptures, but also for, uh, also for background and understanding of how the Tanakh was being, uh, was being read and understood. It is a 600-year Bible study of sages arguing against sages, position against position. It is invaluable to our understanding of the Bible. It certainly does not rise, uh, raise to the level of being uh, on the authority of Scripture. Uh, we do not consider it to be Scripture. It is simply our resource. It is a more valuable resource than any of the Christian commentaries in your library. I can promise you. If you're not familiar with the Talmud, that's okay. That's part of what we're going to do in this study is actually provide you with some of those resources so that you can read the words that are written uh, by the sages of Israel on various subjects and various things. I'll provide those for you in the, in the study. And I think that you'll find a lot of them to be instructive and, and helpful in understanding. Understand that the Talmud and the way that the Talmud is written is written as a Bible study, is written as a, uh, as a, as a, uh, as a discussion point, with point after point, many different sides being represented oftentimes. In the Talmud, one of the things that is most, most uh, uh, impressive about the Talmud is rarely do you read a position where one rabbi or one scholar, one sage, simply argues on the basis of what his opinion is. Rather, they are constantly referring to their teachers and their teacher's understanding of the scriptures. And they're constantly giving uh, scripture references. Of course, they don't reference it in the same way that we would today because there are no chapters and verses. Rather, what they're referencing is they're, refer uh, they're referencing key words in those passages or quoting parts of those passages. The Talmud is full of biblical quotes uh, in making positions. Uh, the Talmud does not use uh, scripture as a bludgeon against one another. Uh, one of the things of renown about this is the overwhelming sense of unity of Judaism within the contexts of these disputes uh, in the Talmud. Of course, by the time of the Talmud, uh, Judaism had, had, uh, had dissolved into one major sect, that being Pharisees. Uh, and within that sect of Pharisees, uh, smaller, uh, smaller divisions. Uh, but there are, uh, there are minor sects represented as well. Uh, in the time of the first century, and before the Talmud was recorded, but the Talmud records disputes and conversations 
being being uh, transmitted orally, memorized by by sages, by wise men's disciples, is in fact um, uh, two main groups are of of the Pharisees would be the the followers of Shammai and the followers of Halil. Uh, Matthew chapter 19 talks about the followers of Shammai and the followers of Halil and the dispute over over divorce and remarriage that Yeshua is brought to. And this this these two sides this is a, this is a this is a biblical fact and it's also a historic fact that these two groups within the Talmud there are over 300 disputes between the school or Beit. Uh, that is the house of Shammai and the school of Beit Halil. So Beit, Beit Shammai and Beit Halil are, are in fact in dispute uh, over 300 times within the Talmud. And, and uh, you can usually find um, the same people being arg- the same sources, the same sages uh, being sourced. Sages actually, these this would be in the sec- usually the first and the second century. But all, all the way back to Halil himself, who was a sage that was, that was mainly... Uh, uh, mainly in ministry before the birth of Messiah, he, uh, he, he would he died somewhere around ten in the common era. So it's very very likely that uh, Yeshua's uh, visit to the temple uh, at, at age twelve, as recorded by Luke, was in fact uh, Halil would have been one of the sages that that were uh, were amazed at his wisdom, his questions, uh, which is the Jewish way of the Hebraic way of of dealing with. Uh, with um, discussions is to ask questions. Um, and Shammai as well. Shammai would have been alive at the same time. So these two great sages, Halil and Shammai, these two great sages who, who in fact represented these two groups of the Pharisees, uh, these disputes. Well, and I said that there was great unity within Judaism uh, as recorded in the Talmud. There's an exception. And this exception, and we're going to spend a lot of time studying deals directly with clean and unclean and as a substrata and as a sub-argument uh, um, deals directly also with the issue of Gentile inclusion. And one of the things we're going to do in spending, uh, we're going to spend about three weeks looking at this in our study, uh, is to get a good feel for this idea, what was going on in nominal Judaism, that is Judaism at large, though all the sects of Judaism, but specifically the Pharisaic sect, and not to, not to diminish Pharisees. Uh, I know that a lot of people read Matthew chapter 23 and immediately push the Pharisees aside to go, well, I'm glad we don't have any of those people around. And let me challenge you, Acts 15 includes Pharisees as the believers. Now, we may not like what they're saying uh, with regard to Gentiles, but uh, there's a very clear, very clear connection between the followers of Yeshua and Pharisees in belief, and in in uh, in agreement on the on the on the principles of faith and scripture, so uh, there is a great great connection between uh, the believers in the first century and Pharisees, and most and many many, if not the majority of Jewish believers in the first century, would have been considered to be in agreement with the Pharisees, if not Pharisees, uh, not considered Pharisees themselves. And we're going to look at that, and uh, we'll, we'll look at specifically uh, Yaakov, James, uh, leader of the council, as we see in, in Acts chapter 15, one of the leaders of, of uh, the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem um, uh, believers, uh, was most likely a... Uh, a uh, a, a, not only a Pharisee, as he's as he's uh, as he's described by Hegesippus uh, in the in the second century, uh, the church historian in the second century, but also um, uh, we c- we can clearly see by his description and by some of the things that he says that he actually favors the house of Shammai. 
in a lot of things that he says. Well, we're going to look at some of this stuff, and it's, uh, I, I hope that it will be not only intriguing to you, but that it will also help you determine uh, to discover the, the true context of a lot of the nuanced passages in the, in, in the apostolic scriptures. Um, there was a voice from heaven, however, that overruled a lot of these things that came up. We're going to look at it in Acts chapter 15, but just real quickly, a voice from heaven uh, and the evidence of the, of the Ruach HaKodesh, the, the Holy Spirit, overruled uh, a lot of the things with regard to Gentile inclusion in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15 uh, the evidence was presented. It takes place, the... the, the uh, the voice from heaven, as I'm calling it, the bat kol, the voice from heaven, or the daughter of a voice, as it is described in Hebrew. The voice from heaven, of course, is Acts chapter 10 and Peter's vision. We're going to look at this in our study. Acts chapter 11, uh, the, the, the follow-up to that with regard to uh, the other apostles and the other, uh, the other council uh, rulers of Jerusalem. And then Acts chapter 15, the final ruling, which deals directly with this, this vision, this voice from heaven. Uh, but you know, change doesn't come easy. Even though Acts 15 seems to settle the issue, yeah, Gentiles can be a part, uh, Acts, Acts 15 seems to settle it, it doesn't come easy. And there's, in fact, 1,900 years of church history uh, that, that deal that change doesn't come easy. Uh, in the second century, uh, the, the largely Gentile congregations, the, the vast majority, because because of the destru- destruction of the temple in 70 of the common era, uh, because the, uh, the original disbursement of a vast majority, specifically of Judea, uh, of uh, Jews, in, uh, following, f- during that and following that, from 66 to 73 of the common era, um, Jews were being scattered out of the land. Uh, because of that dispersion, uh, um, uh, many of the followers of Yeshua were, were dispersed, although some... some uh, uh, were dispersed uh, and stayed uh, grouped together. Certainly, their numbers dwindle over the years. Then again, in 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 130 of the Common Era and 132, with basically the land of Israel being being uh, almost completely expunged, whether they were killed or or deported in the diaspora into the into the into dispersion. Uh, uh, the idea that, that uh, Jews no longer could have a land or a place or, or a home within the land of Israel, um, that changed everything with regard to... Uh, and in fact, in, that, in the second century, we see uh, the vast majority, if not almost all, of the followers of Yeshua with fairly, fairly narrow band of followers, uh, Jewish followers in, in the Babylonian provinces, uh, the... the the Nazarenes, as they were called in English, uh, a sect of Judaism, um, the vast majority were Gentiles uh, in, throughout the world, the followers. Uh, they had to make excuses uh, for why it was that they had pushed off Israel uh, in the first century, and why, why, in fact, Israel had no part in all of this. And in coming to that, there, was, there, were, there, were, there were dramatic changes. Church history gives us dramatic changes, theological positions that are outright anti-Semitic. Uh, things that are uh, inexplicable if you read the scripture in context uh, and, and yet and, and it's ongoing today we see we see so many although there's a renewed interest in Hebrew roots there continues to be a theology in the larger Christian church that is in fact uh, against Jewish things uh, they find it interesting but they still use pronouns like them and us instead of us this idea of having one people, we need to examine whether, whether, it's, whether it's even possible under that context. 
But certainly God has desired that we be one people, as Yeshua's prayer was. And in Messianic Judaism, I talked a little bit about the conflict in Messianic Judaism, this conflict, what do you do about Gentiles? How are Gentiles included? Are Gentiles included? Many congregations do not have this. I can promise you, though, there is an underlying current in every congregation that has to deal with this issue. And when we see luminaries in the Messianic movement standing up and making statements that, that provide distinction but not merely distinction between Jew and Gentile, but different roles, different purposes, different, uh, different standards. That's not one people. It's not to say that there aren't legitimate distinctions, but that's not one people. And when we see these things, we can know, specifically in Messianic Judaism, we are getting a pushback. We're getting a conflict from the enemy that proves we're getting to the point. Messianic Judaism is unique, has a unique duty and calling in the, the, the fellowship of believers worldwide. We have a unique calling because we, like I say, are the point of the spear. We're the ones that are showing Jew and Gentile one in Messiah. No one else is doing this, only we are doing this. Jew and Gentile, one and Messiah. And when we get division within the Messianic community between Jew and Gentile, when we get people pushing distinctions to the point of different roles, then we can know that we are getting close to the target. Back in World War II, uh, uh, those in the back of the airplane, uh, bombers going over Germany and, and, uh, and Eastern Europe being sent from, from England and from North Africa, could always know, Allied bombers could always know when they were arriving close to the target or where, in fact, the, the targets were, were the things that were, in, spa, in fact, being defended, the things that were important to the enemy. They could know because the flak, the flak would be sent up, the aircraft would be, uh, would be uh, being shaken, being hit by shrapnel, uh, you know, turbulence, even if they weren't being hit and they were being, they were being bounced around. Someone riding in the back could always know, we're getting close. This is, the, this is my point. We're getting close. When we get, when we get luminaries within the Messianic movement pushing back and saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Gentiles are allowed to look in through the window. Jews, and only Jews, had the responsibility of, of preserving the scriptures and following the scriptures, uh, specifically the Torah then that's pushback. We're getting close to the target. We know that this is an issue. This is why it's so important we understand this book of Galatians is about being one people. It's being about one people. Not about being different people. Not about all being Gentiles. But by being, and not about by all being Jews. But by being one people. Who is this one people? Uh, as we know, in, in, uh, in, in the days of the first century, uncircumcision and circumcision were in fact key words to define the position uh, the position that, that people were taking as far as, uh, as far as ritual conversion ritual conversion and it is a shorthand for saying become a Jew to say someone was circumcised it wasn't talking about eighth day conversion it's talking about being like uh, someone being born uh, or excuse me someone being converted or convert, uh, uh, ritual, ritually converted to being Jewish and we're going to look at this in depth but let's go, to, go to Ephesians chapter 2 let's look at this real quick and we're just going to spend about 10 or 15 minutes now looking at this uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and specifically why it's important that we become one people spent a whole lot of time pre uh, preparing for this one 
uh, focus, and that is Ephesians chapter 2. So we've set the stage. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and uh, go to verse 13. And Galatians, Ephesians. That's right after the book of Galatians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Actually, go up, go up to verse 11. Let's start in verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. Now, he's speaking specifically to Gentiles. Remember, Paul is, a, is the apostle of the Gentiles. The, the, the Ephesians, those living in Ephesus, were not all Gentile, but a large number of them were Gentile, and certainly he's wanting to address the Gentiles here. Remember, you were once Gentiles in the flesh, called on circumcision by the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. This idea, uh, this is what you know. It, it, what is interesting is his use of this is he's actually he called on circumcision by circumcision. In other words, this is like a this this is a slam. People were actually making a slam on Gentiles. Uncircumcision, uh, called uncircumcision by the circumcision. In other words, uh, and this is an important part, and we're going to look at this in depth. This is like saying, you have no part in the world to come. You, were, you had no part in the world. You were not considered among the covenant community. You were uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision. Verse 12, that at that time you were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's agreeing. You, you had no hope. There was no way, as Gentiles, that you could be in any way connected to the promises of God. Uh, where were those promises found? They were found in Israel. They were strangers to the covenant. Verse 12. Without Messiah, aliens from the commonwealth. Now, you know, I've heard people describe this. It's kind of funny when you hear people make make ex- exceptions. I've heard people in the Messianic, luminaries in the Messianic community, make this comment. Well, commonwealth of Israel, that's kind of like, you know, the commonwealth of England. You know, uh, uh, you know there's, there's England itself, the United Kingdom, uh, you know, Scotland, and uh, um, uh, previously Northern Ireland, and, and uh, you know, there's the United Kingdom. But then there's the Commonwealth. You know, Canada used to be part of it, but it's no longer. It was a colony. Now it's just part of the Commonwealth. Then there's Australia. Uh, so it, this idea that somehow um, the Commonwealth uh, is not really, you know, a citizen of Canada is not a citizen of England. Uh, so the Commonwealth just means you're in, on the periphery. You still remain in the periphery. So in fact, I've heard people use this, use this description. See, 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 Gentiles, even Gentiles who believe, they're still aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel. Oh no, actually, they're not aliens anymore. But now they're part of the Commonwealth of Israel. In other words, they, they're using this very verse to say something that it doesn't say at all. See, it doesn't say you're you're now part of the Commonwealth of Israel. Um, uh, it says you were with you were aliens from the Commonwealth. That you were outside, had no part, had no part in the promises. They have no part in the world to come. Essentially, is what it's saying. Strangers from the covenants, no hope without God. Well, here's this word commonwealth. It's uh, politeia. It's rights and citizens, and op- rights and obligations of the citizenship. It's where we get the word politics from. Uh, politeia uh, in the Greek, the commonwealth. It means to be citizens. That's what it means. Here's what Paul was saying. I wish that he actually had it had been re- it had been translated in English this way because this is what he was saying. You were aliens from citizenship of Israel. Now, if we're going to take the argument that a commonwealth of Israel uh, here that you were formerly an alien, but now you're no longer, as Paul's going to make here in the point, if 
if as some people use this, then I would argue the opposite then. I would say, well, that means that those who are followers of Yeshua, if they're Gentile, they're actually citizens of Israel. And I'm not talking about the state of Israel. I'm talking about the people of Israel. They're actually citizens. Well, well that's... No, no, we can't go that far, some, some might say. Uh, of course. Um, continuing, verse 13. Uh, but now... Uh, Gentiles had no hope. Verse 11, 12. They had no hope. They were apart. They were distanced. They were separate. They were not part of the people of Israel. Now, verse 13. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. This is... This is sacrificial language. This is temple language. You who are far off have been brought near. This idea of coming near is in fact the language used when you come near to the altar. This is the language used. It's a rabbinic language as well, but it's biblical language. It's from the Torah. To say, you who were once far off, who were separated, who have been separated. That back, back in the temple, uh, first, second temple days, in the first century and before, Gentiles could come to parts they could come up on the Temple Mount. Yes, they could. It was considered to be of a lesser, holier state. It was somewhat holy, but it was lesser, holier state. But there was, there was built on the Temple Mount a sorig, a fence, a wall that separated Jew from Gentile. Only a Jew, a male Jew, could go past the sorig and go into, into the Temple proper itself to offer an offering, to worship the one true God personally. A Gentile could not. Now, he could come up there he or she could come up there. Uh, they could purchase. They could purchase an offering uh, outside. They could bring an offering up there. But they were themselves were not a, not a lot, not permitted past the sorig behind the wall to in fact offer that offering. Uh, they had to hand it across the wall to someone else. This is uh, by pain of death. There's a, in the in the um, in Israel Museum in Jerusalem. There's actually uh, uh, several. Uh, uh, markers, uh, there's one marker who actually has it spelled out in, in, uh, in uh, several languages, Aramaic and, and Greek. Uh, I believe it's also in Latin. It says, you know, Gentiles proceed past this point, a point of death at, 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 at expense of their life. Um, no, there's, <laughs> they could not approach. They, would, they were not allowed to br- come near. So, but now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. We, what we were forbidden to do, we can now do. Now, specifically, verse 14 is not talking about that middle wall of division. It's the Sorag. It's, it's not. It's talking about something else. But that Sorag, that wall of division in the second temple, which was never decreed by God in the Torah, never was it found in the first temple, never was it there, but is only a, 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 a creation of the second temple, period by man. That is a symbol of, of rules and regulations. Verse 14. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, that is our peace offering, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace. And that, verse 16, that he might reconcile them to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. <laughs> this, uh, of course, this, this, this verse in 15 is used, uh, again, uh, like Galatians, a bludgeon against those in Messianic Judaism. In fact, uh, the minute you start telling people, yes, I, I keep kosher, uh, uh, a follower of Yeshua, but, you know, I don't eat, I don't eat pig, I don't eat shellfish. Uh, of course, the minute they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna go back to their pastor, most of them don't know these things up front. They're going to go back to their pastor, and he's going to have all the details. He's been trained in seminary how to answer this question. Uh, don't want to go back under the law, right? So he's going to say, no, no, look there. See, the, he's abolished the law. You know, the, 
the law has been nailed to the cross, as as uh, as quoted elsewhere. They think uh, this, in fact, is is completely false. Uh, the word entole ento, is here the law of commandments. Yes, but contained in ordinances. <laughs> this is dogma. This is the word dogma. Dogma in the, in apostolic scriptures. First of all, dogma in Greek anywhere is relating to decrees that are man-made. In apostolic scriptures, it is always every time it's used, it is man-made rules. Always man-made rules. What we're going to see specifically, and I've put down here 18 measures. Specifically, this refers to the 18 measures. And we're going to study the 18 measures in depth as they're described in the Talmud. This is, this is exactly what it's talking about. The, Yeshua has abolished the 18 measures. Specifically abolished the 18 measures and the supporting rules. His blood made sure that we could have access and not be held away by the commandment or the rule of man because God never commanded such a thing. So, we are brought near by the work of Messiah alone. Uh, uh, verse 18, it's Jew and Gentile both have access through, through the work of Messiah and Messiah alone. Go to chapter 2, verse 19 now. Um, Actually, go to verse, let's finish up verse 17. And he came and preached to those who were far off and to those who were near. Those who were far off, of course, would be the Gentiles. Those who were near were already inside. They were already having access to God. For through him, speaking of Yeshua, through him we both had access by one spirit to the Father. Now verse 19. Now therefore, you who are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. There it is. Citizens. Fellow citizens. What is it, that word, fellow citizens? <laughs> he uses that, and, it, and actually, it's a, it's a reference back to this. Uh, it, it is it is a sum polites. It is a politeia, which is commonwealth citizenship. Sum polites. That is a joint citizenship, not not separate citizenship. Not oh, by the way, you're in the commonwealth, as some people would say. You're over there. You're not really you're not really citizens of of this group. Uh, although you know we have a relationship, you're just not really citizens. Uh, this I hope puts to rest should put to rest the idea that distinctions between Jew and Gentile somehow equate into different citizenship, different family. I was told by one, uh, one uh, eminent leader, uh, one whom I greatly respect within the Messianic movement, um, when talking about this very issue, I was told that, you know, isn't it great we're in one body, but the body's not Israel. You know, and he looked at me and said, Rick, I love you, but we're not in the same family. I, I had to, I had to, had to. It was very sad to me to hear that, uh, coming from a Jewish man uh, who follows and believes in Yeshua, a leader, to look at me and say we're not in the same family. Uh, heaven forbid that we ever, in the body of Messiah, ever come to the conclusion that because we are Jewish or Gentile, that we're not in the same family. The body of Messiah is the same family. You who are no longer strangers, verse 19, now therefore you who are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, that is the holy ones, those who are righteous, <laughs> Israel, and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Messiah Yeshua himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple. In the Lord. I mean, the temple language is throughout this passage. In whom 
you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, to be fair, the Messianic leader who said this to me uh, would certainly say, "Oh yes, we're all we're all one we're all one body. We're all the dwelling place of God." Uh, however, uh, Gentiles can never be part of Israel. Um, <laughs> this idea of being fellow fellow heirs. I love this in, in, in chapter uh, chapter three. Let's move on. Chapter three, verse one. For this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of uh, Messiah Yeshua, for you Gentiles, he's, he's raising his credentials. I've been called for Gentiles. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he has made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly. Uh, briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Messiah. A mystery in Scripture is something that was formerly concealed but now revealed. That's not, no longer a mystery. He's going to tell us why. Uh, which in ages was not made known to the sons of men. It has now been, it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles, not just Paul, and prophets, that Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise of Messiah in the, uh, through the gospel. Now, partakers of promise. Which promise is that? It's the promises made to the fathers. As he references back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Strangers from the, prom- the covenants of promise. Who are those covenants of promise made to? Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses, David, the prophets, Israel, and only Israel. There is no salvation, as Yeshua says in John chapter 4. Salvation is of the Jews. There is no salvation apart from the body of Israel. Here we see, verse 6, that Gentiles should be, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of, of his promise in Messiah through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace God given to me by the effective working of his power. One body. Here it is. Mystery of the ages is now revealed. Uh, uh, this idea of fellow heirs, I'm going to step back just a second. Fellow heirs is, is sun clair onomos, shared law portion. It, it's, it says a fellow heir or a shared inheritance. Notice the word namas in there. It is, it is law. It is law. It is a shared law portion. Uh, sung is, is the idea of its being one. In other words, it's shared. It's, it's like a synagogue as uses that same, same uh, prefix. Uh, it's, a, it's one place you all come together. The idea of, 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 of this shared law portion or fellow heirs means that we share the same inheritance. I'm sorry, as a Gentile, that seems awfully... That's a far stretch to me. What, 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 what was the inheritance? What is the inheritance of Israel? What does nominal Judaism, Judaism say the inheritance of Israel? They get from the Torah itself. What, what has God done in choosing Israel? You're a unique people. You're one nation. One nation. One people. Given one law, one Torah. The Torah is a gift. Only to Israel is what nominal Judaism says. The nations refuse to accept it. Only Israel has been given the duty and the privilege of the Torah. A land. One land. Now, now you're telling me that Paul's saying this here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, I'm a fellow heir? I inherit too? Uh, let me tell you something. As a Gentile, 
These are precious words. I had no hope. I had no hope. I had no, I had no inheritance. I was separated from God. I had no hope in the world to come. I had no people. I was separated from the promises that God made. I was a stranger and an alien. But now by the blood of Messiah, I've been called in. I've been called family. Fellow citizen. I have one king. You and I, Jew and Gentile, have one king. One law. This is a testimony. This is a profound testimony. Um, that God wants to reveal to all. Not just those of us who stumble across it. He wants to reveal to all. Even seen and unseen. Uh, going on to chapter 3 of, of, of Ephesians. Chapter 3, verse 4. We see this. By which... Excuse me. Let me go back up to verse 3 to make the context here. How that by the revelation he made known to me the mystery I've also briefly written, by which you, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Messiah, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as is now had been revealed by the spirit of his holy apostles and prophets, that Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Messiah through the gospel. Verse 7. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Now verse 8. To me, whom, who am less than the least of all these saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of the Messiah and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages have been hidden in God who has created all things through Messiah Yeshua to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the congregation, by the assembly of believers, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which is accomplished in Messiah Yeshua our Lord, in which we have bold, in which in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through through faith in in Him. This is directly connected back to John chapter 17, Messiah's prayer that we may be one. Why? Because oneness in Messiah, this mystery, Jew and Gentile, one in Messiah, this mystery declares the manifold wisdom of God. This was hidden in age past, ages past. It's not that this is a new thing. Oh, before Gentiles could never be apart. But everybody wondered how. Man came up with his own way. We're going to spend lessons looking at, three, at least three lessons looking at this. Man came up with his own way. God had a plan. God always had a plan. It was always the same way. God had a plan how Gentiles could be joined with Jew in Israel and could by thereby make testimony to those even unseen principalities and powers in heavenly places. The manifold wisdom of God. Do you understand how it is that when we, when we make distinction to the point of being different, being different families. Okay, we're one body, but we're different families. We have no shared history. Do you understand how dangerous this is in the destruction, in the destroying of the very purposes of making uh, of God and making His manifold wisdom evident to all, both those seen and unseen? This is why this book was written. This biblical rebuttal to this question, this conflict is there's only one people in one body and that one people and that one body is the congregation of Messiah. It is Israel. 
And it's our testimony. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. We see that all creation groans and waits to see the revelation of the sons of God. Who are they? Jew and Gentile. One. This reveals God's plan and His purpose. This reveals God's ultimate redemption. Only we today in Messianic Judaism are making this declaration. Jew and Gentile, one in Messiah. We as one are Israel. Not by fiat. Not by taking over as as Gentile Christians did in the second century. Throwing the Jew and the Jewishness of the Bible out. Not by man's decree as rabbinic Judaism has sought to do turning Gentiles into Jews by ritual conversion. No. We are one only by the work of Messiah. When we, in Messianic Judaism, dispute with one another over this issue, that we are separate family with no common heritage, we are, in fact, making a division that detracts from the very message in the Gospel of Messiah. Even good and positive distinctions should not detract from that unity. I am a Gentile. I expect my Jewish brothers and sisters to declare their Jewishness. However, I expect us to work and live in unity. That we share a common heritage, a common tradition, common scriptures, common prayers. That we are one people. As it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness. By the way, as, a, as an aside, Gentile believers, often even in Messianic Judaism, don't do a very good job at lowliness and meekness. We are many in numbers and we seek to take over. We come in and we push our way. We declare rabbinic Judaism as being uh, the antithesis of biblical, uh, biblical faith and we are in error when we do that. We need to come in with lowliness and meekness, understanding that salvation is of the Jews. That to them were entrusted, as Paul said, the very oracles of God. And we need to reproach, approach our brothers and sisters, our Jewish brothers and sisters, with all humility, recognizing we had no hope. <laughs> and it is only by the grace of God we find ourselves in this body of, of Messiah. With all lowliness and meekness, Ephesians 4 verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, for in bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body. One Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one immersion, one God, and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Let's endeavor, as we, as we begin this study, to uh, renew ourselves to the commitment, our duty, to be one people. One people with a shared heritage with one king, a shared inheritance, a shared law, one people. Let's discover what our duty is and let's live by it. Let's close in prayer. Father, I do thank you for your mercy and grace that you called us from uh, the four corners of the world. In Acts chapter 17, Paul says that you determined where we were placed, the time and the place that we were if by some means we might seek you and find you. Father, whether we be Jew or Gentile, this is true. You placed us in the, in, the, uh, in the genetic family that we were in. And Father, by your grace, you have now placed us in the spiritual family. That means far more than DNA. Where we have a common heritage, 
that we have one king, common king, a holy king. Father, where we have one responsibility before you to live righteous lives, we thank you and praise you that you have given us this vision, this renewed vision, Father, from your word. And I ask that you might bless each one, Jew and Gentile, that we might be renewed to one another, that we might be renewed as one people in one body, that we might be renewed to defend one another, to stand strong beside one another with uh, arms that are linked, Father, that brother and sister, Jew and Gentile, might declare your kingship with one voice. Father, I pray that you might bless each one that devotes themselves to this study, to your study of your word, Father, I pray. And I pray this in Messiah Yeshua's name. Amen. God bless you.